Voices from the Front Lines, your national movement building show. And uh, today we're going to have mainly a conversation with an old friend and comrade, Jonah Raskin, who I'll tell you about, but we're going to start by telling you about some very interesting, important struggles, as always, going on in L.A., and uh, like your support. Jonah, how you doing? Are you on the line? I'm here, Eric. Yes, I'm doing good. I hope you're doing good. Yep, yep. I've been reading the emails you send out, and uh, I forwarded the latest one to a cousin of mine who's doing a documentary about uh, bus drivers in San Francisco. I thought he might be interested in what's happening in L.A. That's great. Well, you know, one of the themes today is going to be about the Bus Riders Union, and among the many books I either write in my head or not, One is called Driving the Bus of History. The bus riders make history in Los Angeles. So every time I say I'm with the bus riders union, they say, oh, I never knew the drivers were so politically progressive. I said, they're not. I said, we're talking about the bus riders. So let me just tell you briefly, our audience, what's going on. And the main thing is we're really happy that you can call uh, Strategy and Soul today and talk to Channing Martinez and the organizing team at 323-903-6238. Because what's happening very briefly is, you know, the strategy center has, you know, basically a broad anti-racist, anti-imperialist politics. And we frame a lot of our work around two kind of framing slogans, We want the social welfare state, not the police state. We want the climate justice state, not the warfare state. And that allows us to deal with pretty much everything, right? Because the United States is a police state, it is a warfare state, and it is a climate criminal. So what's going on now is I think a lot of you know that the Strategy Center has what we call a campaign for urban reconstruction, It's based on, of course, Black Reconstruction America by W.E.B. Du Bois and the whole concept of the Reconstruction movement that was defeated in the United States. And then we had a second Reconstruction 
the civil rights movement that was defeated by the white settler state. There's a lot of talk about a third reconstruction. I've written about that. I am not sure I believe in that anymore. I think (laughs) if you don't have a full revolution, I mean, the United States cannot be reconstructed. It is a white settler state. It just can't help itself. But we try. So the point is that a lot of you know that we've had the slogans. I just want you to five slogans. And Jonathan, I think you'll find this interesting. The first is called free public transportation. Second is stop MTA attacks on black passengers. The third is no police on MTA buses and trains. The fourth is no police in OAUSD schools. And the fifth is no cars in OA. We want a world without cars, without police, pretty much. And with a lot of black and Latino people being able to breathe politically and biologically as well. So we've been winning some pretty amazing victories on one side of the police state, which is at the Los Angeles School District, with some very decent people there, just starting with Monica Garcia and with Kelly Gonez, Nick Melvoin, and Jackie Goldberg, and Tanya Franklin-Ortiz now has come on, and so we have five terrific board members. First, we cut the school police budget by 35%, which freed up $25 million. Then... Last week, we went into the school board, and with their support, we took the $25 million plus another $11 million from Superintendent Butner to bring $36 million into helping black students in schools. And the Strategy Center, Inner City Struggle, Students Deserve, and Community Coalition are going to be part of a long-term monitoring project, and Channing Martinez from the Strategy Center is going to head up our piece of it. So we were really amazingly happy. It's rare that the Red Sea opens. Everybody was sending us congratulations. And then, just like clockwork orange, we get this email that says, guess what? The Los Angeles MTA, the transit agency, wants to increase its police budget by $110 million. What? We just won this thing. And what does it say? It says that the United States and L.A. is like a hydra, you know. I mean, you cut off one head. If we cut 35% of the school budget, they're going to increase the MTA budget. And these are the same kids, same parents on the trains, on the buses. So this Thursday, we are trying to go to the MTA to get the board to vote no on this $110 million increase. It turns out that the MTA was just authorizing all kinds of overtime, knowing that the police were going way over their budget to attack black and Latino passengers, only to arrest them, 60% of whom were black. And now they went over their budget. Well, you know, of course, you know, if you're low income and you go over your budget, you know the government comes back and gives you your money back, right? No, you have to so-called live within your budget. We want to cut the police by 50%. And if you're interested, today is Tuesday. We're doing phone banking. Tomorrow, we're having a march demonstration at Earl's on Crenshaw. Not against it, with it, as we talk to people in South Central about warning them. And yes, if you participate, there is lunch on us at Earl's on Crenshaw. 323-903-6238. And Thursday morning is the vote. If you know Sheila Kuehl, if you know Mayor Garcetti, if you know Janice Hahn, 
you know, any of the other board members, Holly Mitchell, who's we hope very, very good, Mike Bonin, thank you, city councilman, and other members of the board, call them up and tell them to vote no on the police. So the last thing is go on our website, www.thestrategycenter.org. You'll get all the information. And if you want to get involved, call 323-903-6238. So, Jonah, this is what I do. I've been done it my whole life. I just, <laughs> that's what I do. Nice to talk to you. Well, uh, it's good that you're, you're, you're carrying on uh, the things that you started to do uh, a long time ago, and you're sticking with it. That's, that's really good. Yeah, I stick with it. Just wake up every morning. Jonah Raskin is an, you know, when we say old friend, or I should say long time, I decide we don't want to say old friend. Long time friend, comrade, our lives have intersected and disappeared and intersected. So it's interesting. I yeah. looked at your Wikipedia page. It says Jonah Raskin, born in January 3rd, 1942. Yes. And I was simply, I think I might have been in the womb. I was born December 4th, 1942 is an American writer who left an East Coast University teaching position. Born in New York City to a secular Jewish family, that's Jonah and Eric. Raskin was raised in Huntington, Long Island. Eric was raised in Brooklyn and then Valley Stream, Long Island. His parents were communists in the 1930s and 1940s. Eric's were socialists and anti-communists in the 1930s and 40s. My dad. And my mom was a great anti-fascist. Uh-huh. So we started out in a pretty interesting place, you and I. There's so much to talk about. I want to go right away to, if it's okay, to Columbia University strike. And the whole transition to the kind of revolutionary youth movement, Weatherman, Abby, Timothy Leary, God, we've been in so many things together. But I want to come back to some of your literary writing as well. But take us through that period. At, let's start at the Columbia strike into Weatherman and your own evolution of consciousness at that period in your life. Okay. So I know one thing I wanted to say is that I know people from that time in that place, and they claim that they don't have any memories of what happened then and there. I don't know if they're honest uh, or they've, like, erased their memories. I mean, we live in a society that has collective amnesia. So I see it as one of my roles, one of my jobs uh, is to bear witness and, and to remember and to describe as accurately as I can, you know, what I do remember and what happened then. So... At that time, 1968, I was trying to do two things at the same time. I was trying to be a uh, academic in a university, and I was also trying to be part of the protests that were going on at the same time. And so in April of 1968, I would go and teach classes, and then I would come back to the campus of Columbia, where I had been a student, and go into the buildings that were occupied by students and be part of the protests, it all culminated with my arrest. And there were over 700 people who were also arrested. 
including uh, Tom Hayden and Abby Hoffman and, you know, a lot of people. So that was definitely a turning point in my life, to get to be arrested um, and to be inside the tombs, as the jail was known in uh, New York City. Right. I was arrested a couple of other times in New York for protesting. One of the times I was beaten and tortured by the police. I'm not using the word tortured, you know, cavalierly. Systematically worked over for about 12 hours. Wow. By police in several precincts. And then went to court the next day and was charged with uh, criminal anarchy and attempted murder of a police officer. Here they were, you know, they beat me and tortured me, and then they charged me with trying to murder them. Hold it right there for a minute, Jonah. We're going to keep going. This is Eric Mann. You're on Voices from the Front Lines, your national movement building show. I'm listening to my friend Jonah Raskin. The reception is not great, folks, but I'm asking you to hang in there because the content is... John, I just want to start with a couple of thoughts since we're going back and forth. I mean, one thing is that I not just have a photographic memory. I have what I call cinematography memory because I've been in a movie that I haven't stopped. So one reason I think my memory is so good is I have not changed. I mean, I've been the same person, I think certainly by 21, at the Congress of Racial Equality. I was shaped by my black teachers. I went through the most Mm -hmm. intensive transformation of consciousness that is going on today. I mean, I have plenty of mistakes I make. But one reason my memory is so good is I have nothing I want to forget. (laughs) Even when I've done things bad, I don't want to forget them. I don't. And in my writing, I'm pretty self-revelatory about mistakes I've made, arrogance, you know, because that's part of the teaching process. So when you're saying that a lot of people don't have memories, I can talk to Mark Rudd at one point who has no memory of who he was which we could get into as a sidebar. But just to say that I have no problem of amnesia because oh, even when I wrote the article about the Columbia strike on the 50th anniversary, I urge you to go on Counterpunch. I spent three months on that article, and my memory was great, but I went back and studied and listened to everybody and did interviews. And uh, So one thing I wanted to say, Jonah, is that isn't it interesting that we were pretty beyond privileged white people who got involved in the fight against the war in Vietnam. I'll speak for myself. I want to ask you. We probably had some perception that, well, what are they going to do to me? You know, I'm a teacher at Stony Brook, only to find out that you're tortured by the police and put in prison. You know, at least for me, it was somewhat of a shock when I went to prison for two years. I didn't expect that. So is there any element when you were being tortured that you went, what the hell? This wasn't in my script. Well, Eric, I would say that I was not surprised. I mean, it was shocking, but, I mean, I grew up in the American West. Right. So I was a student of um, American history, the American Revolution, uh, of the Civil Rights Movement, of, uh, you know, anti-communism. I knew... I grew up in a family and heard about the Spanish Civil War and, right. you know, the concentration camps. You know, by 1969, I mean, I went to graduate school 
and I wrote a literary study about writings about imperialism, about what the Belgians did in the Congo, what the English did in India. Yes. So um, I knew about atrocities, and I knew about the role of the police. I knew it was, you know, it happened to other people, and then suddenly I was the other people. But I knew that that's what happened to people, you know, no matter where they came from. It didn't matter where they came from or what class or what their skin color was. You know, if they took a stand against the police, against empire, that they were going to get, we were going to get arrested and go to jail and get beaten and get tortured, you know? Yeah. Well, first of all, I want to say that, uh, you know, it was really good reading your Wikipedia page, really, because the mythology of imperialism that you wrote, which I want to read, by the way, it sounded great. And congratulations. I mean, Edward Saez said it was a very important book. So absolutely. I just want to say for myself that I understood everything you just said. It is yeah. still the first time that I had the experience with the police not being black. There was some element of, oh, my God, this is really happening. That's all I want to say. Anyway, the point being is that we who made a choice to be on the side of the black movement and on the side of the people of Vietnam, as you said, the system said, okay, if that's how you want to be, we'll treat you accordingly. What brought you to sympathy with the weatherman tactic? And were you also sympathetic at the time to the weather underground? Well... Um, I will answer that as best I can. So one of the things that I was asked to do in 1970 on the part of the Weather Underground was to go to Algeria and to meet with Elders Cleaver and to tell him that he should not trust Timothy Leary. I mean, this is what the people in the Weather Underground told me. Because Leary was telling people which people in the Weather Underground helped him escape from Lompoc prison. Unbelievable. And get out of the country. So the guy was not trustworthy. You know, some people help you get out of jail, get out of the country. You're not supposed to blab. <laughs> to so, say the uh, least. Yes, exactly. So... Some years later, I said to the people in Weather Underground, well, do you remember that you sent me to Algiers and asked me to talk to Cleaver? And they said, no, we have no recollection of that whatsoever. Now, maybe there's just a lot of things on their mind. It wasn't, you know, their lives. It was my life. But you'd think that they would have remembered something like that. <laughs> so I think that it's inconvenient for some people to remember what they did in the past, because they'd like to erase it. it. It's in contradiction with what their lives have become. Let's yeah. stay on that theme for a little bit. Eldridge Cleaver tried to arrest Leary, is that correct? Well, he put him what he called under house arrest. And he, he did so because he found out he was untrustworthy? Yes, Exactly. So, and then he also asked Leary and some of the I went to Algiers with a bunch of other people, including, you know, some people who'd been in Weatherman, Brian Flanagan, yeah. uh, uh, Jennifer Dorn, Bernadine Dorn's sister, Stu Albert, who'd been with the Yippies. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, it was a sort of comedy of errors, 
really. Um, Cleaver said to the Algerian government, this guy, theory, he's in the tradition of France Fanon. And, and at first the Algerian government believed him, and then they found out, no, he was advocating the use of LSD. Right. Well, that was France Fanon. So <laughs> I would say of all of the political groups that were active in 68, 69, 70, uh, Weatherman was closest to my own uh, political beliefs. Right. Did I agree with them 100%? Uh, no, I, I, uh, I didn't. The other thing that I would like to say and need to say is that my wife at the time, who was then named uh, Eleanor Raskin, joined Weatherman and was part of Weatherman from the summer of 1969. So uh, I'd like to say, and it's not really with exaggeration, that I was married to the weather underground. <laughs> and um, I mean, after I was arrested and beaten and tortured by the police, I was <laughs> treated as a hero by the weather underground. I know rightly or wrongly, I don't know, but I was. And it somewhat it went to my head. So I was in this position where all of a sudden I was part of the uh, weather underground uh, inner circle. And in 1970, I did most of the writing for one of the communiques. It was called New Morning. So at that particular juncture, and I did go back and forth about this, but, you know, the whole question for me, I, I spent a lot of time thinking and writing about this, you know, was youth culture a revolutionary force or not? And, I mean, for New Morning, I said, don't write off these people. Don't write off the people who are hippies, who are dropping out, who are smoking marijuana, who are on communes, the they're people we should talk to. And Abby often used to say that a yippie was a hippie who'd been hit over the head by a, a policeman's baton. Hold it right there, Jonah. This is Eric Mann. You're on Voices from the Front Lines, your national movement building show. Now, I just remembered we are on a fund drive for KPFK. And we're 26 minutes in, and I got so involved with Jonah that I forgot the larger narrative, which is really important, but it's relevant. So we're just going to take a second. Jonah, tell us for now the name of the pamphlet that you're going to send that they can get as a premium along with my book, Playbook for Progressives. What's the name of your pamphlet? It's Okie Joe Munster's True Adventures and Misadventures in the World of Marijuana. I'm going to send it to anybody who, uh, who wants it. Joe Munson is a friend of mine. He grows marijuana. He's grown marijuana for uh, decades. He's a marijuana dealer. He believes that growing and dealing marijuana is, he sees himself as committing civil disobedience. And that's none of the government's business to uh, regulate what anybody grows in their backyard or front yard and what anybody uses, whether as medicine or recreational. And he's the most honest person that I know who has been in the marijuana world for decades. So here's the deal, folks. You need to call 
985-5735. You know, sometimes we used to do fun drives where, you know, we repeat it every minute, 818-985-5735. Luckily, I do know it by heart. And first of all, for whatever you contribute, the station needs you. To make it simpler, because it's going to have to be for the $100 for them to process, you're going to get a copy of Jonah's pamphlet on a marijuana hero, and you're also going to get high on my book, Playbook for Progressives, The 16 Qualities of the Successful Organizer. Now, one thing I realized that Voices has been doing lately is, you know, I've had a a wonderful talk with Victor Grossman, an amazing lifetime communist who is still in Germany, was in East Germany for its, virtually its entire duration from 1945 until its end in about 1989. I want you to go, if you could, go on our website, Voices from the Frontlines. There are so many amazing shows. You know, I'm going to realize this serious thing. When I get a, a late at night, I don't know what I'm doing. I, you know, I go on the internet, I read sports and stuff. I'm going to start listening to voices from the front lines more, I'm serious, and downloading old shows because I don't remember half of them, even though I was there. So Victor's in his 90s, Jonah and I are in our 70s, and there are people in their 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s who are making history, who made history in a period where we're still politically conscious and trying to shape the politics of today. So if that matters to you, then you call 818-985-5735. You make a contribution to KPFK, which really, really needs the money. You'll also get a copy of, uh, you're going to send a bunch of copies to me, and I'm going to bring them to the station so they could put them together with my book as the premiums go out. Is that okay? Yes. Eric, do you have any idea how many copies you will want? <laughs> I would hope 10 would be, if we get 10 to 12, that would be fantastic, okay? Okay. So if you send us 15, if 15 people call in today and and there's more than 15 copies, I will make extras. So don't worry, I'll I'll do a nice job. My book is $17 and I'm contributing it to KPFK as a premium. I love to do that. That's one reason I had the book, Paul. I'm very appreciative of Beacon Press. I just realized that we're up to 8,000 copies, which is pretty good, and I just called Beacon. They're down to 100, which is very good news. So we're about to do, they, they're talking about doing a third printing of Playbook for Progressives, which is very exciting, and I'm just going to be in touch with my editors. But down to 100 copies is pretty cool. So you're going to get some of the last of the second printing, and it's being used in my course. So 818-985-5735, please give money to KPFK, and you're going to get Jonah Raskin's pamphlet on a marijuana pioneer, and you're going to get Playbook for Progressives, the 16 Qualities of the Successful Organizer. Obviously, you can give more, and you can also give less, but it really means a lot that you give. So please do. So going back to Jonah, I want to start with you know, uh, sort of my view on some things, and I'm interested that I'll allow you to say yours. Yeah. I mean, I was in the weather above ground. I joined it as an extension. I really believed at one point, at first, it was going to be an extension of SDS. I was, you know, the new SDS. We knew SDS was over. I was there yeah. 
at the convention in uh, late June in Chicago, 1969. I disagreed very strongly with the, both progressive labor and the Revolutionary Youth Movement, although I was totally in the Revolutionary Youth Movement side of that debate. Yeah. Uh, I didn't know what I was going to do, but by August, uh, this woman and I, we went to Cleveland. I don't know if you were there at this war council. There were about 300 people, billiards, you know, Linda Evans, uh, Bernadine Dorn. It was terrific, deeply moving, and very persuasive. And Bill and Bernadine convinced me to set up a weather collective in Boston, which I did. Yes. Now, I look back on it with significant disagreement, but with no bitterness. I mean, no anything, no recantation. It was a tactical choice that lots of us made. You know what I mean? Lots of us. It was not yeah. a minor... I know so many people that in some way so-called ran with the weather people, had collectives very similar to that. The Yippies were close to the weather people. You know, we were all, there were many of us who were the leaders, mainly white people, of course, who were the leaders in the anti-racist, anti-imperialist white student movement types moved in with the belief that something more militant and committed had to be done to take some of the pressure off the black movement and to accelerate the struggle against the war in Vietnam. Whether or not that was the right tactic, and I would argue it was not, is different from were our intentions anything but good. And also, large numbers of people agreed with this. I mean, this was not a minor phenomenon. Thousands and thousands of people participated in some of these types of actions. And Hundreds of thousands of people supported them. Do you think that's accurate, Jonah? Is that your perception? Well, as you were talking, I was thinking, so, Eric, the, the, that time that we uh, were talking about, it was wartime. Right. The United States was at war in Vietnam and against the Vietnamese people. It was bombing the place. Uh, it was also at home. It was a time of black rebellion and cultural revolution. And when you're in the middle of wartime and rebellion and, and upheaval, it's impossible to have a perfect strategy to know what's going on. Sometimes you have to make split-second decisions about what to do and how to do it. I mean, there are certain things, you know, days after... Fred Hampton and Mark Clark were shot and killed while they were asleep. I went into the streets with a thousand other people in New York City to protest. Right. Um, you know, we were in the streets, and Nixon was getting an award from the National Football Association, <laughs> right. Football League. Yeah. Well, was that the best strategy to do at the time? I'm not going to second-guess myself or any of those uh, thousands of people. You just sometimes you have to fly by the seat of your pants. Also, when I was connected with the Weather Underground people, I would also say, you know, there's no one single thing that people should be doing. Wherever people are and whatever level they can commit to, they should be encouraged to do that, whether it is riding in the streets or writing a letter or uh, having a teach-in or spray painting at night or sending a telegram, everything, anything you can do, do it. it. It all adds up to a whole 
gestalt of, of protests. So I'm not really informed about what's happening in L.A. today with the riders. But I would say, you know, in whatever way people can contribute to this movement, they should contribute. You know, maybe they can send money. Maybe they're too old to actually get out on the street. Maybe they should go out on the street. I think that's one of the lessons that I learned from that time. You know, don't say every single person has to do exactly the same thing. The voice you're hearing is Jonah Raskin, a longtime comrade. You know, if you're interested in getting involved with the Bus Riders Union, you can call 323-903-6238 right now because there are people at Strategy and Soul doing, uh, they're going to be phone banking tonight, they're doing posters. If you're interested in helping the Strategy Center in any way, you can go on info at thestrategycenter.org and you can decide how you want to support that work in any capacity. What Jonah just said is very important, and I agree with that. I really do. You know, Malcolm X said, by any means necessary, and we also meant by every means necessary. Right. As Jonah was saying, look, what are we supposed to do about George Floyd? People went in the streets. That was great. Some people threw stuff through the windows. What was upsetting to me is not that it was that it was some white people mainly who did it, who I think should not have done that. I think that was wrong and that wasn't a good tactic. They don't have no right to do it. But generally, generally, if people burn down cities because that's what they feel a sense of exasperation, that's what they choose to do. I think one thing I say to people, Jonah, is if you think you're so smart, King was nonviolent and they was killed. Malcolm supported an armed struggle. He was killed. John Kennedy said, let's work inside the system. He was killed. Bobby Kennedy said, let's work to get out of Vietnam, and he was killed. So what exactly strategy worked? You know what I mean? We, we get the perception that if only we did this, we could bring mm-hmm. down the system. You know, not you. You're wrong. I'm right. Let me tell you. Well, my experience has been to have a tremendous sense of humility about it. I do what I believe is best. And I work very well with other people because, as Jonah said, it's really important. As long as you do something, it's all going to be, you know, that's what we need. Now, as you know people more, you do struggle with people inside, you know, to push people to do more. But not from a sense of disapproval, from a sense of you're needed. We need more from you. Are you willing to do more? And people often respond well. So I think you and I have a similar, you could say, non-sectarian view of history. And just one more thing, you know, Jonah, when I was at Columbia, I was so influenced by the uh, fight against the Institute for Defense Analyses that I organized this demonstration against the Harvard Center for International Affairs, which was another think tank carrying out genocide. And for defacing property, I got two years in prison. Yeah. So let's segue to marijuana. Jonah, we could talk. We certainly could do a five-hour show. Yeah. 818-985-5735. Seriously. Jonah, say the name of the pamphlet. It's a very cool title. Tell them one more time. Well, the guy's real name is Joe Munson. He calls himself Okie Joe, and that's how he's popularly known. He believes in civil disobedience in the tradition of Thoreau. And the booklet that I did with him is Okie Joe Munson's 
adventures and misadventures in the world of marijuana. Been a marijuana grower, a marijuana seller, a marijuana user. And his basic belief is that the government has no business telling uh, citizens what they should grow or not grow or what they should use or not use. I mean, the American government lied to the American people about marijuana for decades. They used the marijuana laws to go after black people. I mean, jazz singers like uh, Louis Armstrong. I mean, the marijuana laws from all through the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s was basically, uh, as Michelle Alexander pointed out in her book, it was a version of Jim Crow to arrest young black men and brown men and put them in prison. So there were tens of millions of people who were put in prison for decades. It's still happening in some states. So I would say an assault on the marijuana laws has been a blow against empire and against racist uh, rules and racist laws. You're listening to Voices from the Front Lines, your national movement building show. You're on KPFK, 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, streaming live on the web on kpfk.org. Check out our own website, voicesfromthefrontlines.com. You can download any show. If you go on there and register, you get a weekly, goes out Tuesday morning. It's an email that you get that lets you know what's going to be on that afternoon. We'd love you to register and be part of our mailing list because we also occasionally write you action items. Who you're listening to now is Jonah Raskin, an author, writer again, a political organizer, a scholar, a movement person his whole life. Joan, I have a couple of thoughts, but I want to let you elaborate. Why are you focusing now? As my understanding is now, you're doing a lot of writing about marijuana, right? This is a bigger part of your life at this point. Is that correct? It is one of the things that I am doing, yes, now, writing about marijuana. People want me to write about marijuana. They pay me to write about marijuana. <laughs> That's good. It's a big part of the economy here. The bulk of the workers who are in the fields are all Latinos. So, yeah, it's definitely one of the things that I'm doing. I write two columns for a local newspapers on this subject. I have written about Mexican men who are part of this. And, you know, it's a way for Latinos to survive here. They get paid better in the cannabis industry than they do in the grape industry. They would rather work in the cannabis industry. They're learning valuable skills. It's also, there are many people who, instead of using um, opioids, and the opioid addiction is terrible, as you know, there are many older people who are saying, I'd rather have marijuana as medicine than what my doctor prescribes, the, you know, the opioids. So there's a lot of good reasons, I would say, to be concerned about marijuana in terms of labor, in terms of people's health, in terms of agriculture. I mean, most of the grape growers around here use toxic chemicals in the fields. 
people get exposed to them. Almost all of the marijuana growers and farmers are organic and biodynamic and are not using chemical pesticides. So I, I did want to say about bus riders that I would imagine that bus riders are, for the most part, they're people who don't have cars, so they can't afford to have cars. They're dependent on buses to get to work and to see their families. And so they're very often people who are the hardest hit by recession, depression, uh, unemployment, uh, economic crisis. Somebody said to me once that the job of the journalist is to afflict the comfortable and to comfort the afflicted. Right. Probably a lot of people who are bus riders are afflicted, so it's important to comfort them in whatever way possible. To take a minute on that, and thank you for saying that, you know, we built the Bus Riders Union, and I just did a teach-in last night with Barbara Lott Holland and Channing Martinez and a group of us on the history of the Bus Riders Union that began, unbelievable, in 1993, 1994. It's still going on. The bus riders, 500,000 of them, are 55% Latino, 19% black, even though black people only 8% of the population in L.A. through genocide. For all the reasons you said, Jonah, they are what's called transit-dependent. They need public transportation. They are 60% women, and they, being our members, by the way, they're our members, are are domestic workers, they're security guards, they're high school students, they're disabled people. Yeah. Uh, they're the low-wage working class. They are on their way to work. They're kids with their boombox. They're Korean grandmothers talking Korean while somebody's speaking Spanish. You know, people are speaking whatever they want to speak. And we went in and found humanity in there, but the MTA creates inhumanity. So this is a sick agency. I mean, look, whatever you want to say about Amazon... If you're an Amazon customer, they are trying to please you. They are trying to do something for you. The MTA is the only company, because it's a government agency, that hates its customers, that wants to kill its customers. The MTA doesn't care if it had an empty bus, because all they want to do is have a rail construction project to drill a big hole in the ground, give everybody a contract, buy a train for you know millions and millions of dollars, Put police on the trains to arrest the people who cannot afford the $100 a month for the fare. Um, to 60% of the tickets go to black riders. 60% of the arrests go to black riders. It's like a hell on wheels run by the Democratic liberal establishment. Mayor Garcetti, Sheila Kuehl, Mark Ridley Thomas. It has not been Donald Trump who brought this misery down on the bus riders. It's the Democratic neoliberals in L.A. who we've been fighting mm-hmm. forever. So that's what I do. We don't have the George McGoverns anymore. We don't have left liberals. You know, we don't have those people anymore. They were all driven out of the Democratic Party by Bill Clinton and those folks who didn't even want them in there. So it's been very, very rough doing this organizing, Jonah. And you described yeah. it very vividly. But we do good. You know, that's what we do. We go on the buses. This COVID is slowing us down, 
So if you're interested in getting involved in the fight on Thursday, of all things, to stop $110 million in new police to arrest poor people, to arrest black people and Latinos on the bus, call right now, 323-903-6238 and say, yeah, I want to get involved in this movement. Info at thestrategycenter.org. Jonah suggested different ways you can help. Go in there and try to figure out how to help us. And if you have any leverage with any of the elected officials on the board, including Mayor Garcetti, use that on behalf of the bus riders union. Say, we don't want any more police on the trains. The crime on the trains is not the people. The crime on the trains is the MTA. So we got to get the MTA off the trains, get the police off the trains. Okay? Jonah, in your last... What do we have, D'Angelo? How many minutes would you say? Five. Great. If you get three and I get two, you get the first. What are some of your last random thoughts, Jonah, about anything in the world? Where are you in your life right now? What are you thinking about? What's on your mind? Well, I have a lot of things on my mind. I mean, one of them is my health. The other one is, you know, what am I going to do with uh, the rest of my life? Right. Uh, I have lived in Sonoma County for 45 years, uh, and it's been a good ride, but I'm ready for a change, and I'm going to move to San Francisco very soon. So I'm going to have a whole new chapter of my life starting a little bit later this year, and I'm, I'm ready to give up my car. I don't like my car. In Sonoma County, if you don't have a car, you're screwed. But in San Francisco, there is some public transportation, some decent public transportation. So I'm planning to use public transportation of Muni. I was remembering also, I have a couple of nephews in the city in San Francisco. And when they were teenagers, they took Muni, the public, the buses everywhere. Right. Uh, the buses didn't work, or the drivers uh, complained about teenagers. So my nephews used to tag the, the buses with all kinds of slogans, and they would get arrested by the by the transit police and go to jail. Right. So, uh, you know, my nephews were, they weren't criminals. They just wanted to get picked up and taken where they were supposed to get taken in some kind of timely fashion. You know, what's so hard about making the buses run on time? (laughs) Well, Mussolini tried to get the trains on time, but the the bus riders even is trying to get the MTA to go on on time. You know, you were saying about next chapters. I, I won't go into mine right now, but... I think it is important. I mean, as as we get older and we we say, all right, like I'm working on a five-year plan because I plan to be here for a long time. My grandmother lived to 105. But I like, you know, I was just thinking about how the Soviets, how much I like the idea of a five-year plan. And then you have to have a one-year plan within it. But so your next chapter is you're going to move to San Francisco. I know you've really, you told me you've really, uh, downsize your possessions, right? Oh, yeah. Gave away. Yeah. Gave away pretty much everything. And one good thing is you probably don't know what the next chapter is. 
Well, we don't know a lot of particulars. We know that in this society of ours, uh, there's going to continue to be uh, oppression and exploitation and racism and sexism and ageism and, and that all those things that dehumanize people. And so uh, we continually need to uh, reclaim our humanity. That's being well, it's being taken away from us. It's being robbed. Just a minute, right this minute, I had a friend uh, I knew in L.A. years ago. She was married to a movie director. I got in touch with her recently. She's now a priest in the um, Episcopalian Church. Huh. Her ministry, as she calls it, is to go into all the jails in L.A., and to work with women prisoners who, and she said, I mean, most of them have been raped or sexually abused or beaten. I mean, there's a, you know, who's somebody who's making, redeeming her life and, and really helping all these, you know, young women and, and to go into the jails and to, to bring, you know, caring and compassion uh, I mean, I love what she's doing. Well, Jonah, it's been very wonderful talking to you, and I think the question of reclaiming the humanity of an inhumane system is the challenge for all of us. I mean, the main, I teach a class at Cal State Northridge now, on, on it's called the Introduction to Transformative Organizing, and the students are using my book, Playbook for Progressive. And the big yeah. thing they had, they said that's so exciting, is they said, what I learned from your book is you, I didn't realize an organizer is an average person, a normal person who just, you could be an organizer where whatever you do, one of my students is probably going to become a Catholic priest or is very active in the, you know, two of them are ASL, which I've just learned about, American Sign Language. They are people who are, are hearing, but they are in deaf studies I had people from Pan-African studies. It's a wonderful class. And I think where we ended up with, Jonah, is that whatever the chapter is, you're going to fight for humanity in an inhumane system. Exactly. And with that, I'm going to send you my love, and we'll continue the conversation. Hey, thank you, brother. You take good care of yourself. You too. Thank you. All right, everybody. This is Eric Mann. 818-985-5735. Please continue to contribute to KPFK. I'll see you next Tuesday at 3. This is Eric Mann. You're on Voices from the Frontlines. Take good care of yourself and all power to the people. And as always, thank you, D'Angelo Jones. It's really a pleasure to work with you.